This episode is brought to you by Salt and Strings Butchery in Southern Illinois. Order your custom beef today by visiting saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Barbell Logic, the premier online coaching service for barbell strength training. Get your first month free by signing up at barbelllogic.com slash hardmen or use the link in the show notes. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn, joined today by Michael Clary, pastor in Cincinnati, Ohio. Michael, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me on, Eric. I appreciate it. Well, the first question, Michael, I have for you is you've got a Speak Plainly shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully there'll be some plain speech in this episode. I think there will be. Uh, we'll be talking about your book, God's Good Design, which I've read. Very, very good book. Uh, so we'll delve into that. But first of all, I got to know, Speak Plainly, what is this shirt about? I, I I feel like there was a conference. Somewhere in here is Chase Davis, sweater vest. I don't know. You tell me. Uh, yeah. So this was the t-shirt from a conference we did uh, a couple months ago in April called uh, King's Domain is the ministry. And then Clear Speech for a Confused Age was the uh, the topic. And it was basically a, a meant to be a kind of a planting a flag in the ground for what does it mean for us in the modern time to speak clearly what needs to be said and to not rely on stuff like winsomeness, which as a, I'm talking about winsomeness as the concept, which has become a dogma, which is like mm. niceness and inoffensiveness. So it was a, it was a conference and I had Chase Davis here, Aaron Wren, Michael Foster, Josh Dawes, and myself, we all spoke at it. And actually um, we're going to do another one in uh, April next year. And Recovering gendered virtue, which is one oh, of the great. themes from that's going to be the that's going to be the theme. But we, uh, I'm still lining up speakers now. But but to speak plainly, these T-shirts were handed out to all the all the people who came. I, I'm wearing this one because uh, when Matt Patrick was on your show, uh, he had it on there, and I was thinking, all right, whenever I go on Eric's podcast, I got to make sure that I wear yes. the same shirt. Yes, so. <laughs> yeah, Matt will be uh, very pleased with that one. Next time, you got to get like the, uh, the I don't know the the jacket or the sweater that Chase wears. I mean, I, what's he's talking about the the picture that he has online? It's yes. like it looks like it's this this cable knit sort of sweater. <laughs> you know, like, would you even wear that in Colorado? <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Maybe with your Birkenstocks. Maybe some people would. Uh, but yeah, we like to, we like to tease chase on that. It, it's been really encouraging, Michael, thinking about the speak plainly. I think more and more pastors, I want to get your take on this, but more and more pastors are starting to realize that this whole game of winsomeness, quote unquote, of trying to soften the hard truths of scripture, even at a pragmatic level is not being effective. And so I think a lot of guys are saying, listen, we need to be faithful to the text and to Jesus, but also starting to realize that like practically it's actually useful to speak plain truth. So I wonder if you would kind of speak to that. Do you see more guys coming along with this speak plainly type of message? Yes, I'm seeing that. I think what James Wood, his article that he he published, he did two last year. It was a it was a lightning bolt because mm. he was able to capture a lot of themes that a lot of people had maybe suspected or felt it was just below the surface and he captured all of these ideas, bundled them together in one very laser sharp article. Uh, well, two laser sharp articles. And when I read those, it was, it was an eye opener for me because I realized, you know what, this idea of being winsome is, it's a tactic to keep us silent and to mm. feel like we're doing the Lord's work in doing so because we're maintaining a good public witness. And so it, it was freeing for me because I was thinking th this is a moment where we can all recognize collectively as Christian leaders, at least some of us, we need to be more bold. We need to be more plain spoken and we're not winning friends and influencing people with <laughs> this winsome approach. It just doesn't work. It, it was, it was a way to kind of shed that skin that I had been uh, wearing for a while of just like, Oh, we, we got to make sure we're nice all the time. And of course, we're not Christian trolls, but we are, even when we are godly in our boldness, we're going to be called trolls. We're going to be called mean. So we might as well just embrace it rather than trying to, trying to run from it. So I love what I'm seeing with pastors. Yeah, that's awesome. I remember one of the things early in my uh, ministry training in seminary, we, we both went to Southern Seminary for a time. I was exposed to the Puritans. I remember taking a Puritanism course with Sean Wright, and it was so encouraging because 
uh, so much of what they were doing in their pastoral ministries was very like blue collar, plain spoken. Uh, it was stuff that like working people could resonate with. But then you can also look at it historically and say, yeah, we love these people. Uh, they were speaking to issues. Um, in our day, it seems like sexuality is one of those frontline issues where plain speech is particularly necessary. Um, so I wonder if you would tell me just a little bit about your story. Why write a book on sexuality? How did this come about? And, and what, how, I guess, how did you get to this point where you're speaking plainly on that particular issue? There's a, a thing I write in the beginning of the book, and it shows up again at the conclusion. And I'm like, there are two truths at the heart of this book. One is that sexual holiness is essential to our uh, faithfulness to Christ. And two, mm. it's going to be a key attack point of the devil in uh, throughout all of history. And you've seen this to be the case. You look all through the Old Testament. Some of the context clues that we may not pick up as modern readers, but they're there, like the Asherah yeah. poles and things like this. There's male cult prostitution. There's fertility cults. These things are it's it's always been throughout the history of God's people, this temptation to worship sexuality and to be um, sexually immoral. And then yeah. all through the New Testament, you see more of the explicit sexual immorality, pornea, these words we're told time and again, these are areas that we must be obedient to the point where in first Corinthians six, nine, I believe it is where, you know, Paul mentions a list of things, sexual immorality at the head of the list, uh, including homosexuality. He says, such will not inherit the kingdom of God, but that was you. But now you have been washed and redeemed and you're walking in holiness. It's, it's a persistent thing. And so what I've what I have seen is that there was a tactic we were talking about just a moment ago, the tactic of being, well, let's talk about these things in a way that will be most likely to gain an audience with people that are that could be persuaded. Right. And from what I can tell, they're not being persuaded. In fact, it's only getting worse. A Burgefell in 2015, that was a big, big uh change, like a big inflection point, because the legit like when you could say there's gay marriage, then all manner of sexual sexual immorality is given legitimacy immediately. Um, and then it was right around that time, like within a year, the transgender thing came to the forefront with a Newsweek yeah. article. And now here we are in 2023, 20, when you have naked men walking down the streets of our cities in pride parades, you know, greeting, shaking hands with children, high fives, handing out candy, naked men with their genitals exposed. So the winsomeness has not got us anywhere at all with the matters of sexuality. So I think it is time for a, for the church to embrace her, uh, hers and the church, her, her strength and prophetic witness to be able to speak boldly without fear, without certainly not with any sort of hatred, but to be clear and direct because this is the issue that is dismantling our society. At least it is. It is part of a of, of a handful of issues that are that are reaping so much destruction. So that's that's the witness part to society within our own churches, though. If we're not talking about it, then our people are being discipled by whatever messages mm. that they are hearing by whoever is talking about it. And that's everybody. So mm -hmm. like mass media, TV, commercials, corporate America, uh, finance, politics. It, it, there is no sector of society, education. I mean, I, I could go on. It's all infiltrated with this dogma of sexual immorality. And so the church has to be very clear and very firm on these issues. Otherwise, our people are just going to move along with the Overton window. So I've made it a point of emphasis in my ministry. In our church, we've uh, we've just said household discipleship is a is a a point of emphasis going forward. It has to be because if if we don't emphasize it, then people will be absorbing these cues from the culture, and they're going to be deceived, and it's going to it's going to go bad for us. Yeah, big time. I mean, such such a big issue, uh, Michael. One of the things we were talking about offline was how I get this all the time with the Hard Men podcast. We're like, okay, so you came out of the womb patriarchal. Um, you had a beard and you <laughs> believed all the things you believe today. And I'm like, actually, no, I was uh, at Southern Seminary. I was sitting under the, you know, Russ Moore and teaching like that, really reading a lot of Tim Keller. Mm -hmm. Those things I thought were great at the time. And, and maybe there were less issues. I don't know. I, I, I think I just hadn't seen them yet. Um, so I kind of want to hear about your story, kind of the progress. What, what kind of brought these issues uh, to the fore for you? 
Well, like you say, I was born a patriarch. Uh, <laughs> after I was born, I turned to my mother and I said, thank you, mother. I'll take it from here. <laughs> yes, that's, right. Um, that's right. No, it's the opposite. Just transparently. I mean, there was, I was a squish. I mean, you know, there were so many areas of my theology where I was following leaders and thinking, these are the guys that are showing me how to do ministry. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a young uh, church planner guy. And I don't know what I'm doing and I want to be humble. I want to listen to uh, the men in the faith that are uh, that have been ahead of me. So I'm hearing, well, you know, some version of you want to craft and nuance the message in such a way for maximum receptivity from your audience. Uh, So I was doing that and people would would praise me. They would say, man, like you said that thing uh, that was somebody else might have been offended, but you said it in such a way that nobody could have been offended by that. And I started to think, you know, you think you're uh, giving me a compliment and I'm starting to receive it as a correction from the Lord. Interesting. So it it became something that I saw within and, and it grieves me to say this, Eric. I mean, just I saw corruption everywhere. And I'm thinking, who are like all the people that I've looked to for courageous, bold witness for Christ on issues that I need help with? A lot of the guys that I'm looking to and that because I look to them, people in my church look to them. And so it's almost setting an expectation that I'm going to speak and act like the leaders that I have put before them as trustworthy. And whenever I break rank and I say something more bold than what they would say, then People in my church are thinking, oh, what's wrong with you, Michael? Why are you being so mean? When really I'm saying like, I'm, I'm looking to the text of scripture ultimately as my guide. I think that there's been just a, we're not prepared to suffer. We, we've gotten so used to this neutral world mentality where, hey, the best idea wins. Let's put our ideas out there and package them in the most uh, palatable way and people will hear it. But it's just that isn't working. There's more hostility against the church. And so it seems what I'm seeing in, you know, big Eva type circles that the leaders are still conditioned in a neutral world mentality. And they're they're just not the cost is too great to start being more bold and prophetic in their witness. And they're trying to maintain the respectability that they'd spent so many years curating. And so I'm seeing a generation of younger guys that don't have platforms. We take and a lot of our platforms are self-created, like Hard Man Podcast. I've got my own podcast as well. It's a it's a self-created platform. And we're just putting it out there using Twitter and social media to just speak to whoever will listen. These are the guys that I'm seeing really have incredible insight. I learned so much from these other guys, the younger, younger guys, or at least the newer generation. They're not you know, uh, holding these, you know, the dean of faculty at some prestigious <laughs> seminary. Yeah, they don't know who he is and they don't care. Right. There's brilliant guys out there. Chase Davis, this dude is incredibly sharp, very brilliant mind. So many minds like that that aren't getting the speaking gigs because they say things that make people nervous and could upset the donors. So so it's up to us, But 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 it's happening and I'm glad to see it. Do you desire to be shrewd financially for the sake of your family and future generations? Well, we know that a robust society depends on getting this right. Success in building and passing on personal wealth. Let's be mature, responsible leaders with the resources God expects us to turn a profit on, to love our children and children's children well. Joe Garrisey with Backwards Planning Financial integrates investments, debt, insurance, tax strategies, and legacy planning in a holistic approach, coaching his clients to act wisely. You can do better than you received. You can affect your family trajectory and maximize your efforts to set up long-term fruitfulness. Joe starts with your values and goals, then provides impactful counsel to help you form and implement your financial plan. Click on the link in the description for Backwards Planning Financial and contact Joe today to get started. Yeah, big time. Uh, One of the things that makes me uh, ask, you know, I've asked this to myself, uh, you you serve as a pastor, you're coming to convictions, but there's always a point where the rubber hits the road. I remember I started the Hardman podcast and I had people from the church and then people kind of social media. And in the other industry I was working in the gun industry 
simultaneously, like people contacted me and like, are you trying to commit career suicide? What are you doing? (laughs) And it really was one of those moments where I had to count the cost. I had to say, okay, do I really believe this? Am I really going to, as we say at refuge, you know, Brian Sauvé and I talk about this all the time. Why are, why are we not a nuns? Well, because we're actually staking our reputation like the apostles did. We're saying, no, we believe this to the point that we're willing to suffer loss for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so particularly for public ministry in your life, were, were there moments like that where you just realize, like, hey, no matter what happens here, I have to be faithful because this is true. This is the text of scripture. And, and kind of what were those moments? What was going on? It's, it's an accumulation of things. But there's probably one moment that, I, that stands out to me as, as, a, as, as, a, as a time when God really grabbed a hold of my heart. Um, I was speaking with Tim Bailey, who's pastor mm. of Clearnote. Well, uh, he's retired now, but Clearnote Church, they've, they've renamed to Trinity Reformed, I believe, but he's in Bloomington, Indiana. This is a man that 10 years ago, everybody thought he was nuts. And now I think everybody <laughs> owes him an apology because he was yeah. right about everything pretty much. Yeah. Um, the biblical sexuality, complementarianism. I remember reading the Bailey blog back in mm-hmm. the day. Of course, I had personal relationship with Tim as well, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, I, even I was like, I don't know, Tim, this is pretty unhinged. And now today I'm like, no, this is, th- he's absolutely right on yeah. those issues. I remember like, it, he, he told me this once. He said, he said, I am the guilty pleasure of so many people who will never publicly acknowledge <laughs> me, but privately will thank me for what I say. And, and yeah. I, when he said that, I was like, I'm one of those guys. Uh, because I'm, yeah. I, I would read what he said online and just think like, Tim, man, you, you really are unhinged. You need to be careful. I had approached him for counsel. And he told me, he, he would just said, Michael, you have to settle in your heart the fear of God more than anything else. And mm. I'd always thought of the fear of God as that means reverence. And of course, it does mean reverence. But it, I think that the fear part was something that I'd never really grasped hold of in a meaningful way. When I, it hit home for me in that conversation very powerfully, I will answer to God for my ministry. I will answer to God for the men and women in my church in some way. And I don't know exactly how it works, but so I, I, I'm just like, I'm not responsible in, I, I'm not guilty of my wife's sins or my children's sins. At the same time, I'm, I do bear responsibility because I am the head of my household. In the same way in a church, there are sins here. There are needs here that I have a responsibility to God that I accepted when I received the call and I will answer for them. That is that has to be the most important thing that is driving me. And I've I've gone to that many, many times in my prayers and my reflection, whenever there's a difficult thing where I'm like, I'm gonna have to say something hard. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna, and people are angry at me. People are telling me, and it's like, I can't believe you. What kind of monster do you think you are? Yeah. So many times I face that. And one, it's pushed me into difficult situations where I'm afraid, but I'm like, I have to do this because this is what the Lord requires of me. This is what faithfulness means. So it it pushes me into those situations. And yet at the same time, it's a source of comfort knowing that Lord, I've, uh, my conscience is clear that I gave it my all and I've been faithful to what you've called me to. Once I had that settled in my heart as a matter of conviction, that the fear of God is a core thing in my ministry calling, then I can deal a little bit more easily with the frustrations that come with saying, speaking hard truth, putting my name out there. Like people know my name online. Whenever people get mad at me on Twitter, they say, Pastor Clary, you're a moron and here's why. They know my <laughs> name. They know what city I live in. I, they want to Google me. I'd be easy to find. I mean, it's like I've, there is a there is a vulnerability of putting yourself out there. Yet at the same time, courage in the pulpit begets courage in the pew, courage in my home, begets courage in the homes of people that are here because they see like I'm following somebody who is saying and doing difficult things and has put his own reputation on the line to do so. And so I don't expect them to do what I do exactly, but I expect them. And I think that they are inspired to, to be courageous and bold in some way. And so we've had the topic around our church. It's like, we need to have a theology of getting fired. What are the lines that you won't cross? Is it pronouns in your bio? If you're, if HR wants you to do that, don't cross that line. If it costs you your job, it is worth it to maintain your conscience and your witness. Things of that sort. Like what, 
what do we need to do practically to protect ourselves from that sort of situation? We need to have more people running businesses, owning businesses in our church so we can employ them, employ one another, because we're we're going to be more vulnerable. There's going to be we're going to be squeezed at different points that will be strong temptation to compromise. And, you know, as, as I referred to earlier, this because sexuality is, is on the leading edge of our cultural rot, that's going to be a, a, a squeeze point. And, and, we're, and I'm seeing it all the time where people mm. are being put in situations where it's either compromise my conscience or potentially lose my job. So it's necessary for me as a pastor to, to lead the way, at least in demonstrating courage and hopefully it's showing up in my people as well. And I, and I do see that happening. I'm very encouraged by the men and women in my church that are, that are courageous and they're not backing down. And it's got this contagious effect with us. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I know a lot of it, uh, particularly when you start preaching on sexual issues, it really has the potential to do two things that I've seen in a number of different places. Number one is people obviously leave. Um, but what we've also seen is people come to the church. Yeah. And then the church starts bearing a different kind of fruit. Because if you're the kind of person in our culture who's like, you know what, I need to submit to my husband. I mean, talk about some of the most valiant, like just beloved Christian women in our communities who will submit to the text of scripture, even though it's heinously unpopular in our day in the men as well. Like, you know, when, when they're like, no, uh, my wife is not the breadwinner anymore. I'm going to go get a job. Hmm. And you're like, praise God. Well, that creates a certain kind of fruit. So that's really cool to see. But going back to this, this issue of, you know, how this all plays out in the church. We're not just, it's not just Twitter. Um, There's actually real local people and local bodies. So I want to talk about the book Uh, again, God's good design. Where did this come from? I know that um, we were talking about, you know, originally church teachings, right? Kind of talk to me through how this book took shape. When did you decide you want to write it and why? So my church is in a urban context. We're in the inner city of Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Right out my window, about five blocks in front of me is the University of Cincinnati, where there's 40 plus thousand uh, undergrads that are going to school there. All conservative Christians. <laughs> Patriarchs. <laughs> <the whole> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, well, not at all. I mean, it's like super liberal. Yeah. Right behind me is uh, Over the Rhine, which is neighborhood downtown Cincinnati, which is uh, known as just a very... Hipster haven, I suppose. Um, and a lot of, so I, when I first moved here, this is, this is 10 years ago, 15 years ago or so. They had this event called Second Sunday on Main. And I took my family down there. It's like, oh, it's a little street festival or whatever. <laughs> no. And it was in June and just <laughs> clueless. Um, and I go down there and I see a sign. It's like the drag race is over here. And I was like, ah, I, I, I don't see any cars. There's certainly not enough room for a drag race, but. Let's go, kids. Let's uh, let's see what's over here. So we walk down this neighborhood and there are drag queens riding on tricycles. Uh, no. <laughs> yes. Drag queens on tricycles racing uh, down the street. And I'm like, OK, um, I'm I have moved into Sodom. This is where we live. So <laughs> yeah. to be in this neighborhood, I mean, it is a it is an aggressively liberal. I live in probably uh, the gayest neighborhood in Cincinnati. That is not a joke. The there's a, a street right over uh, one block away from me, and it is known as a very gay street. And they've got, um, you know, my wife and kids, you know, they're walking around the neighborhood. They're counting pride flags. There was 50 plus like 54 at last count just on this. And the street is just like a, I don't know, quarter of a mile, something like that. Not a long street. So that's, that's my context. Being in this context, believing what I believe. Um, and even as I have firmed up my convictions over the years, my, my convictions have always been out of just being a Christian. You're, you're out of the norm being, uh, you know, complementarian is even more out of the norm being, firmly like broadly complementarian even more so and being patriarchal it's like you're crazy let's lock you up and throw <laughs> yeah. away the key you're nuts because yeah. of that i know that what i'm speaking to people is is mes- is a message that is going to be difficult at best and crazy at at worst if not just they they think it's evil and wicked so there was always this, this desire in me to bring people along. I, I, I love to persuade. I, want, I love to make the argument. I want people to understand why is this not merely 
the truth that you must obey, which it is. But why? Why would God? Are his commands arbitrary or do his commands represent something about a design feature? Mm. If you have a diesel car, you're going to put diesel fuel in it. You're not going to put regular gasoline. You'll you'll destroy the engine. So if God's design is like that, we were designed to operate a particular way. And if we understand the design better, then the commands themselves are open up to us. They become less arbitrary and more beautiful. So I've been making that argument in my church for 15 years, and and I've just encountered so many people that I've heard the objections. Well, what about this? What about this situation here? Well, what, well my wife is different than all the others, or there's all, all of these objections. And every time I've had to consider that and think, how do I respond? I've been able to teach through different things. So um, about five years ago, this this became a, a matter of controversy in our church, and uh, I had to write up a position statement uh, on biblical sexuality in our church and how we would apply it um, and things like teaching classes and uh, pulpit ministry and in the home. What is our doctrine? What, what is our practice? And then to follow that up, I taught a class to expound on the principles and how I arrived at these conclusions. And as I did that, I thought this this really would be helpful to probably any Christian in America that's biblically minded, that wants to follow God sincerely and wants to submit to scripture and has reservations about the biblical sexuality arguments. This is a this this material, this argument would be helpful for them because I make it practical. I make it very simple, not simplistic. I mean, it's a I mean, there's some philosophical things, but I address with pastoral warmth and sensitivity. Here's why this is hard for you. Here's why. Here's how you might feel about this. Well, let me explain why what you feel about it is, you know, you might feel that way, but here's why it is good. So that way you can train your heart to feel better about following God's design, even though it might have some pain and difficulty along the way. So the, the chapters of the book line up pretty much with the class that I taught. Uh, a few years ago, and I've spent the last several years just writing it out, and now it's you know in our hands and able to distribute. So it's a it's a real blessing to have it in print. Yeah, and th- and in that way, I think it, it was after reading it, I was thinking this is a really good resource for churches, uh, maybe other pastors who are thinking through how do I how would I address these issues? How would I even begin? I think sort of a helpful blueprint for that. Now, obviously, Michael, you start teaching on this, uh, everybody loves it. The church just blows up with growth. You're now, I believe, Penguin Random House is like, we need to pick up this content so good. No, but I mean, there's in the church, there's real, like, these are difficult issues to work through. So I'm curious, like, what what was the response? I know it's taken a couple of years and teaching and a bunch of different stuff, but like, what was the reaction? The, well, the reaction that I've, the reaction that I've always had uh, anytime I've taught it and, and had the opportunity to unpack an argument has been overwhelmingly positive. Very few people have have really had any serious objection or pushback. But it's, I mean, because, because like what, what we're arguing here is something that in one sense, everybody's an expert because everybody's either a man or a woman and they feel like they're an expert in sexuality because we all experience it. And we think, well, we know a few Bible verses about it. So what else is there? And, and so it's like, I, I, I think that people are, there's, there's this, sense that we don't really need to learn much. And yet we see what's happening in culture and the sort of things that's going on there that has forced us to realize we we have to shore up our arguments because people are saying things like, well, if I feel like a man trapped in a woman's body, who are you to judge? Jesus said, love is love. Why don't, why don't you love your neighbor? You know, and it's like all the all of the the sim, overly simplistic things that people say is like we need better arguments. So I wanted to 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 write a resource that would be helpful. And the, the, the responses have been very positive. I, I can't really think of, I can't really think of a much like serious pushback. I, I'm, I've gotten some pushback from the publisher and the editors and so forth about like, Hey, your argument could be stronger if you phrased it this way, that sort of thing. But the argument itself has been um, very well received people in the class, even that I thought eh, they're going to hate this. Um, I was thinking like, I was thinking like, I, th- I think you'll like this when you understand it. Maybe that's naive on my part, but I really did believe that. And I wrote with that hope in mind and I, and I wasn't disappointed. I mean, 
everybody that took the class, I mean, it was like 50 people that took the class. A lot of people that I thought would have big reservations when they heard the arguments that I made, it, it addressed their concerns, the things that were difficult for them in a sensitive way while still holding the line on this is why this is good and this is how you can apply it in your life. It, it, they, they received it very well. Yeah, that's awesome. I think encouraging to hear that. Uh, one of the chapters that struck me when I, when I first opened this uh, kind of, it, it's funny because it so, seems so obvious, but men and women are different. How dare, first of all, how, how dare you? (laughs) Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? No, but it's funny. I don't know if you feel this way, but, uh, I feel pastorally a lot of times, uh, we've talked about this here locally. We end up having to teach on things that are like, as Michael Foster said, the cow goes moo. It seems like it should be obvious that men and women are different. And yet we live in a culture that's highly androgynous. Um, so I guess if you would just describe the androgyny problem in America that you see, what's going on here? What, what are we talking about when we talk about androgyny? So uh, in, in the introduction, I, I try to piece together a few, connect a few dots, like, you know, color by number, you know, you're, you've got, or you're following the numbers around to create a picture. I think there's some dots there that are, when you see them put together, it makes sense. So the, one of the dots is Gnosticism. Big word, but simple concept because it's been around, it's it's as old as time. The early church rejected it. But Gnosticism is the idea that the real you is who you are on the inside and the material part of you is uh, irrelevant. This used to be like a religious belief that the Gnostics held and the Gnostics believe that, well, your body doesn't matter. Material, all material things are just evil and, and wicked. So if you have physical sex with somebody, it doesn't really matter because that's just your body doing something. The real you is who you, who is you on the inside? That idea has, has been kind of updated and repackaged and it is, it is with us now, but not as a formalized philosophical movement, but as a, just an impulse or a feeling. So that's, that's one part. The body doesn't matter. What's inside is all that matters. That's one. The second one is feminism is is an application of that Gnostic tendency towards a particular group of people. So the fact that women have a a womb and breasts that were designed by God for the nurturing of children and the bearing of children, that doesn't matter. Um, The fact that you are smaller and less strong, less fast than men, typically, that doesn't matter. You are the same as a man. Your ability to bear a child is uh, just just a, a quirk of evolution, but it doesn't really matter. That's not really who, what defines you in any way at all. And so there's this push to make manhood, man and woman interchangeable. But what's happened is, is, is that when you start to bl- blur these lines, the lines do get blurred to where you have now the child is androgyny, which manifests itself as transgenderism. Well, if I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, then I get, I can just force my body to mold itself into whatever I want it to be. Whenever I'm a little kid, I can get puberty blockers. Whenever I'm an adult, I can have some kind of surgery to modify my body. But it's an application of feminism and Gnosticism where you you combine the two, you get androgyny. And there's other factors that are tied up in it. So androgyny is this idea where, I mean, somebody might say like men and women are uh, the same in 95% of the ways. And I'm like, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't dispute that, but the five percent of the differences make all the difference. And everywhere in Scripture where humanity is addressed, it seems to be driving this this uh, distinction and saying that holiness is going to be shaped by your masculinity or femininity. You don't get to just say, uh, well, there's no masculine fruit of the spirit or feminine fruit of the spirit. I've heard that a bunch of times. No, but it's like a man is going to love different than a woman. A man's joy will look different than a woman's joy. So uh, the androgyny thing is a, is a way of just eliminating the distinctions that God designed and he designed them for a purpose. And ultimately, it's a rebellion against the way God made us. So does that, does that answer your question, Eric? Yeah, that's great. Uh, and it leads, Michael, into the kind of the next thing I want to ask you, which is this concept of gendered piety. So I had heard this early on with the Hard Men podcast. You mentioned it in the book as well. But kind of this idea where I would talk about what it means to be a godly man. And, and people in our culture, like we've gone so far down this road that people are like, well, being a godly man or a godly woman is the same thing. So it's like androgynous, 
applied to the spiritual side now as well, even in what sanctification looks like. Uh, but you do something unique with this uh, beyond just gendered piety. You chose virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I wonder if you would just unpack why virtue, uh, why did you like this term? Why use it in this context? Yeah. So piety, I, 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 I've, I've like pondered using gendered piety as a, because I know others have written on that. Michael Foster wrote on that. I wanted to amplify and build upon, you know, an idea that was already out there, but I, I ended up breaking from it because of the associations of the words themselves. Piety, mm-hmm. uh, it conjures, at least in my mind, and, and and I think others too, this me and Jesus in my quiet time, and I'm being like so pietism, pi- pietism, right? So yeah. it's like men have a different quiet time than women have a quiet time, I, and I wanted to avoid yeah. that idea because it's much bigger. And of course, uh, uh, C.R. Wiley um, in his book, uh, the, I think it's the Household and the War for the Cosmos. He he mm-hmm. develops the idea of what piety truly is, but if but if I had to write a book on the, the definition of the word piety just to be able to use the word, I thought that wouldn't be helpful. Virtue seemed to be a little bit more of a husk that had meaning that wasn't too preloaded with ideas that would distort the message. So I, I wanted to focus on virtue. And we do think of a virtuous person as more of a holistic concept. Mm-hmm. Um, so a virtuous man. What is a virtuous man? And how is a virtuous man different from a virtuous woman? And that was the that was the approach I took in that chapter. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, as you kind of sketch each one of those out in sort of an elevator pitch style way, I know there's a lot the Bible says, but if somebody comes to you, young man, they said, yeah, but what does that mean to be a godly man? What sorts of things would you say? What direction are you going to point them? Well, our, our biblicist impulse as evangelicals is going to want to look for you know, a Bible verse. So here in, here in scripture in third Corinthians, it says, men, you have to do these things, women. And, and I think like that, that doesn't work because even in the places where the Bible does specifically prescribe behaviors, we still reject them. So we need something. I mean, for some, the Bible is not enough. So uh, I wanted to make a design argument that would show how, what the scripture says presupposes something that's already there that we should know and should acknowledge. And the Bible is just showing us, Hey, here is, uh, here's where the, the iceberg pokes above the surface. We're going to tell you a few things, but those few things are based on something deeper. So Paul says in Romans one and and first Corinthians 11, does not nature teach you or men reject natural relations and women reject natural relations. He's assuming a nature that has moral obligations built in. Mm -hmm. So what is the nature of man? What is the nature of woman? That's, that's the question. And what moral obligations can we uh, deduce from that, from wisdom guided by the spirit and scripture? Mm. So, the nature of a man, and I, the, the elevator pitch would be this, virtue corresponds to design. So just like, you know, I mentioned the diesel fuel versus unleaded fuel, you act in accordance with what you were designed to do. There is overlap, but the most virtuous version of yourself will co- correspond to your design. Well, what is the design of a man in his essence? What is the design of a woman? Well, it's reproduction. So the teleology, the telos of masculinity is fatherly, fatherhood. And that's not just having intercourse so that you sire a child, but it is the embrace of all the duties and responsibilities that come with your part of reproduction. Same thing with a woman. Uh, The teleology of femininity of womanhood is mother being coming a mother. So virtue for a man is going to be shaped like godly fatherhood and virtue mm-hmm. for a woman will be shaped like godly motherhood. That at least is a cliff notes way, spark notes if you're under 30. <laughs> yeah. But that's just kind of a, a crayon version of. Yeah. So I, I tell young men in my church, a young man who's 18 years old, I tell this to my sons, they're 16, 14 and 12. Boys, young men, you need to to aspire to fatherhood. So my older son, um, I've been challenging him lately to be a bit more fatherly toward my youngest son. I'm like, he needs to uh, like show him how to throw a football, show him how to teach him things, help encourage him to grow because you, I want you to learn how to be a father. That's good. Yeah. And you don't wait until, okay, uh, 
wow, child just born. Uh, so what do I do now? I guess I'm a father now. No, it's like you prepare for that. And this is this applies even if you never actually biologically have a child. And of course, we would pray that all all men would. But even in the even in the outlier situations, because a lot of people will look at the objection. You know, well, what about this guy who's never going to have a child? Or what about this woman who's barren or she's un, she's not married or single? I would say it doesn't matter. A single woman in her 50s who never got married, the most virgin virtuous version of herself will nevertheless be motherly. So then we now have a little bit of a picture, a sketch. What is godly motherhood? And it's going to have duties. It's going to have responsibilities. There's going to be a way of being that will correspond to that teleology of our design that can help us at least push in the direction, even in the areas where we don't have a specific, you know, you know, fourth Timothy verse 15 or something. We don't have a specific verse, but we still have an impulse. This is what would a godly father do here? So I'm in a conflict. How can I be fatherly here in this conflict? Yeah, that, that that's the that's the elevator pitch. Red meat is a staple of a healthy protein packed diet, but not all meat is created equal. That's why I buy my meat from Salt and Strings Butchery. Salt and Strings is owned and operated by my friends, Quinn and Samantha Bible, and the meat they offer is raised, harvested, and processed exclusively in Southern Illinois. It's cut and packaged by my friends, Quinn and Anthony. And not only is it the best meat I've ever had, well, all their meat is sourced from local farms that share our Christian values. Salt and Strings is now offering a beef and hog box that can be shipped directly to your door. The 15-pound beef box features 100% black Angus beef and includes ribeyes, T-bones, sirloin, chakros, fajita meat, and ground beef. You can order your beef box today for just $259. They will send it directly to your door. The hog box is $239 and features premium Duroc pork, including eight thick pork chops, one of my all-time favorites, pork steaks, cured and sliced bacon, ground pork, bratwurst, and breakfast sausage links. You can place your order today at saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. And also be sure to follow Salt and Strings on Instagram. We'll also include the link in the show notes. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Uh, it, I think one part of it too, why it's so hard in our culture, you know, I think of the things Paul says, does not nature even teach you? We can't even conclude, like you have Supreme Court justices today who are like, I can't tell you what a woman is. I'm like, well, if you're at war with nature, it's going to be really hard to really understand anything about the world. Yeah. <laughs> so, so basically you're telling me that you don't want to understand the things that are obvious. Yeah. So you definitely have to deal with those. I think the virtue route is, is a good one and I like it. Uh, one of the other things that you brought up, I face this a lot. It seems like every conversation that I've had online or otherwise about biblical sexuality, everybody wants to point to the exception, not the rule. So I'm curious, like, why is that and how do you address it? Why does everybody naturally think also that, well, guess what, Michael? I am the one exception to this rule. <laughs> I, know that, I know that other men should be providers, but not me. My wife is really good at what she does. She gets paid a lot of money. Like, mm -hmm. I don't have to do that. So how do you deal with that, that, that whole tendency to always think that you are and to look for the exception? Yeah, yeah I love that question. I, well, you said a moment ago that when you're in rebellion against nature, mm -hmm. you're going to want to find ways to express that as something other than rebellion against nature. And the way you do it is to find something that, that fits the argument that you're trying to make. So if your argument, if you want to assert men and women are interchangeable or there's a spectrum, there's a continuum of genders, then you're going to want to find something that occurs out in nature, out in the wild somewhere that isn't a moral choice. It's just something that happened. So then you could say, well, God did this. This is this is just, you know, the way we are. There's nothing. Moral. I'm following nature. Yeah, right. So um, intersex is, is an example. Intersex mm -hmm. is a. The, the argument there is that because this thing exists, then that breaks the paradigm of masculine and feminine, which that it, it's a foolish argument. It's nonsense because it presupposes that there is a standard by which you're m measuring or judging this one outlier case. Mm -hmm. The thing that I the thing that I try to do is like one, there's there's going to be exceptions to the rule that but they, those do not disprove the rule. I think those validate the rule. Two, whenever you have 
an exception or an outlier case, or if you just have a blurry line where it's not exactly clear, then you can look at metadata to be able to see, you know, what are men like on the whole in the aggregate mm-hmm. and allow that to inform our understanding. So in the book of Proverbs, you ha- that's what you get. You're not getting so much promises, rock solid, this is the way it is every time. You're mm-hmm. getting, here's how the world generally is. The book of Ecclesiastes gives you the flip side. Here is when all things go awry. The Proverbs says, here's the patterns of the world. And so whenever we follow the patterns of the world, that's the way of wisdom. It's saying, okay, God's design is uh, such that men are generally going to be like this. Women are generally going to be like that. Here's generally how we will relate. Here's generally how things will go. And if we follow God's design generally, then we can generally expect a certain outcome. Um, Christians that truly want to obey God and humbly submit to him will follow those patterns. If somebody always wants to have an exception, if somebody is, and I think it could be a matter of discernment. When I talk to people and I sense a sincere objection, a sincere, that this exception really troubles me. I don't understand it. I have all the patience in the world to work through that exception. Yeah. Most of the time, it's a, it's a diversion or it's some kind of way to give their rebellion some legitimacy. Um, I think we need to see through that and say, like, I know what you're doing. You're trying to negate a design feature by pointing out an exception. That's not going to fly. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, it makes me think of the woman at the well, actually. And, you know, she's she basically she's in sexual rebellion. And but she's like, oh, yeah, tell me, uh, Jesus, um, our father said that uh, everyone would worship in one one place. And he's like, oh, interesting. Call your husband. And uh, like, so I think being a wise teacher and a wise pastor, you have to kind of cut through the objections. You have to be able to cut through them and get to the heart of the issue. Mm-hmm. And, and that definitely, like you said, it takes discernment to figure out. Sometimes you have legitimate questions yeah. and pe- people are genuinely troubled. And so you deal with that one way and then, and then with other cases in a different manner. So I think that's helpful. One of the ways that I found that seems to be a disingenuous objection or at least argument We've seen it from Crossway. We've seen it from the Gospel Coalition for years. And you mentioned in the book, and it's this whole, well, don't make the family an idol. Well, let's not make motherhood an idol. Um, I, I want you to explain to me what's happening when we read articles like this. Is it because we've made the family an idol in America? Is it because motherhood is such an idol in America? Um, why this tax from so many outlets? Cynically, I would say that there is a, um, there is a market for material that would devalue God's design because it's meeting a demand from a rebellious church culture. Mm. If that's if if that's true, then my cynical take will hold. If if I were to give them the benefit of the doubt somewhat, which I don't know that I do. I mean, I I really think that what I just said is true. People, they're a business. They they need to meet market share and meet the demand. Nevertheless, I think that what happens is you have sincere people that look to Crossway as a reputable publisher or look to leaders that make these statements as reputable leaders. And they're like, well, that's a good point. I don't want to make an idol out of my family or whatever. And what it does is it, 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 it creates doubt in people's minds about what godliness looks like and makes them think at least the, the message, the, the fruit of that message is that doing what I naturally I'm inclined to do what God calls me to do, what seems the most appropriate thing to do from a plain reading of scripture. I now have to see that as suspect. So to give you an example, um, I've, I've had this conversation with a number of young women in my church. I'll, I'll talk to them about marriage, family. What are you thinking? Um, what are your hopes and dreams? And inevitably, I get some version of, well, you know, you know, if it's God, if, if, if it's a God's will for me, then I would love to, you know, perhaps get married and, you know, uh, you know, perhaps have some children someday. But, you know, I'm content being single because, you know, I don't want to make an idol out of this thing. I don't God, want to make an God idol. God says be- you should want it. Right, right. I'm like, <laughs> God, God, it's like we see this as a blessing in Scripture. Yeah. And God wants to bless his children. And whenever we obey his design, that is a blessing in itself. So I, I tell people, like, you are not wrong, young woman. If what you most want in life is to be married and to have a family and to raise your family. Like that is a beautiful, glorious thing. Don't, like, don't, uh, don't quench that desire within you. It is good and godly. And a lot of times, whenever they first tell me that, they feel a little embarrassed. 
they feel like they're 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 saying it's like, well, I'd be content working minimum wage. You know, if a man ever told you that, you'd be like, dude, get your act together. Come on. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if a woman says, well, I really what I really just want is, you know, I just kind of want to be a wife and a mother. And I tell them, praise God, you are aiming at the that the best. That is that is what you were made to be. Pursue yeah. that. And of course, it's not all within your control. But anyway, it's a. I think they they say those things about the idol to to make way for people that they want to include within the overall range of godly acceptable behavior because there are people that are there is some sort of rebellion maybe there's some people that is pure circumstantial but I think in a lot of cases you have women who just they don't want to give up their career they don't want to give up you know just their their freewheeling, uh, heavy travel, globe trotting life, and they they want to they don't want to settle down and follow God in establishing a household. They want to have some affirmation of that, and so the way to do it is like I am I am doing the virtuous thing by not making an idol of my family or not making an idol of a potential for a family, when really it is a it is a mask for a hard heart, but it's given legitimacy by other publishers that are using their reputation and their credibility to promote these messages that ultimately causes women to delay, uh, needlessly delay something. And in some cases to even put it out of reach because they wait too long. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's the heartbreaking thing. You have these women that are, they want nothing more than to have a family, but they, they feel like it's wrong to, Put themselves in a position to receive it, to meet a man. And they feel like that's the virtuous thing when really it isn't. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think a lot of it is just, I think it's probably either nefarious or a gross misreading of the situation. Like when you're looking at American culture and you're like, really, you think that the idol right now is the family? I, family is actually dying. Um, I don't think, right. I don't think the family is the idol. Uh, the first time though, and this connected to another theme I want to ask you about and that singleness. So when I, I started reading Tim Bailey uh, on sexuality, started reading about complementarianism, I went back and I had read it in seminary, but I went back and I read the Piper Grudem book on complementarianism. And one of the things that caught my eye was like the book begins with this celebration of singleness. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that's a weird place because scripture is never like, you know, what's really good is single people. Like the opening salvo in Genesis one is like, it is not good for man to be alone. You should have a wife. You should be fruitful and you should multiply and you should take dominion of the earth. And, and then when we have books, you know, that's 89, 90, I think that first came out somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And the opening salvo of theirs is like singleness, Jesus as a single person, not Jesus who gets married to the bride, but Jesus as a single person that becomes the model. I wrestled with this for a number of years. And I remember talking to, um, some different people who had actually gone to like Tim Keller's church. And one of the things they told me is they're like, you're surprised by this. And I was like, yeah, it's surprised. Why were they talking about singleness? They're like, go to one of those churches. You know what New York is? It's a bunch of single people. Yeah. Like that's who goes to that church. Because if you're married and have a family, you can't afford to live in New York usually. Right. So then I started realizing, okay, I think what's happening is the church. And I want to get your take on this, but I think the church was largely responding to what was already going on in the culture and saying, Mm -hmm. look, we got all these single people in our church. Do we a confront them and risk, you know, really ticking them off or B, do we think about this? Like, you know, savvy marketers. And we say, Ooh, I bet we could package this in a way that would be appealing to them. Yeah. So I want to get your take. What do you think happened? Why the celebration of singleness in so much of even the conservative quote unquote church? All right. Cynical take again. <laughs> yeah. Those are my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a pastor. Uh, I yeah. don't know any pastor that doesn't want to see his church grow. Yeah. And you want to see your budget grow and expand. And every pastor, if you, if you've got any sense at all, you know, the messages that like, man, this will bring down the house. They're going to love it. And you know, the messages that could be space makers, you know, it's like, <laughs> I want to clear out half my church because everybody's going to yeah. hate me after I say this. And there's some of those messages, some of those messages that would be a space maker. So if you're in the middle of New York city and Manhattan and you really preach in a, in a compelling, persuasive way, the goodness of marriage and children as a, as a way of dominion of household that God designed you for this, 
You can't raise a family in Manhattan on most salaries, You can, especially if if the wife is going to prioritize raising her children from home. You've got to move out to New Jersey or somewhere upstate New York. You've got to move away from the city. You're going to shrink your church. And if you want to continue to have influence and have big book deals, and if you want to be able to boast, I have a 5,000 member church in downtown Manhattan, you're not going to preach messages that's going to push people away. I have done this many times where I have I have felt I know what I am saying right now is going to probably make certain families in my church uh, feel uncomfortable. Some of them might for that they might be obeying God, you know, to not be at this church. Let's say somebody lives an hour away from my church and there's and I know there are four other churches that are better uh, or, or at least or as faithful between my church and theirs. And I talk about the importance of being in a local community. Let's just use that as an example. If I really preach the importance of being embedded in a local community, a church that you can, you know, you can be involved in the lives of people. I know that there's going to be people that might've been on the fence that are thinking, you know what, Pastor Michael's right. We need to leave this church and go to some other church down the street. Yeah. It actually hurts you in the short term. Right. And, and I've, and I've, but I'm like, I'm like, because I fear God and I want what's best for these people, not necessarily what's going to be the best for growing this church. And it's true. Yes, it's true. So I want to preach that message and, and, and and people will leave. So that that's one part is just that people will leave. But another part is that people that are doing the, the, the true full household work are going to be more, more likely single income families. Mm. And a lot of times we're going to have more kids. So you've got less income, more dependents, you're not going to have as much money to give to the church. If you want to, if you want to have a banger church that is blown up, that can get all kinds of attention, you're going to have it filled with singles who they they each are career people. They've got they've got money, disposable income, and they're going to rave about the community because they don't have families that are taking that time. They're going to be in community with one another, and it will at least for a season appear to be a, a blowing up, healthy, wonderful church, but it doesn't have the foundation that is necessary for a sustained church over generations, it's going to be only as strong as the households within it. And if you don't have many households, singles are, they just, by design, this is not a critique, but by design, they're not as stable because they don't have anything anchoring them to a particular place. I could work here. I could just as easily work, you know, from Topeka, Kansas. So it's going to shrink your budget. It's going to shrink your attendance. And those are just, those are factors that weigh on a pastor's soul. Few pastors will admit that that alters their message but i'm not buying that it doesn't i think it does i think a lot of pastors this just these are temptations that they probably suppress the the reality in their mind of this this is going to shrink my church so they don't they just don't address it at all and it is a message that is custom made to make all the young single beautiful people making making good money and oh, successful yeah. and they don't have a lot of financial obligations that's a message that will keep them coming back and keep them tithing and it, it looks good for the pastor a lot of times what's what makes the pastor look good is not the message that is best for the people man that's so true uh, and it goes back to i think something you said i had a very similar experience to yours uh in my early pastoral ministry uh, i was getting counsel from tim bailey and pastor tim and I, you know, I, I, t- Tim's telling me, you got to deal with this discipline. You got to deal with X, Y, and Z. Here's what you need to do. And I was like, I know. And he's like, so what's the hang up? And I was like, uh, I know that if I do that, I'm probably out of a job. <laughs> and it was just one of the most sobering conversations I had almost identical to yours. But Tim said to me, he goes, Eric, you have been called by God to be a minister of the word of God. You fear him and no man. Mm-hmm. He said, if they fire you, your conscience is clean before God. And it was like, wow, I have this monumental task set before me. You kind of have to have the Esther type mentality where like, if I perish, I perish. Like if I get fired, I get fired. And I look back on that moment, it was pivotal. So I think it's a good place for people as we wrap up this episode, just that there's a lot of pastors, I think, who have been where we were in the past. And we all face those moments where it's like, you, you have to fear God. Amen. And when you do that, it may not be in the immediate, but ultimately God blesses you. I look back on my life and I'm like, yeah, I'm so glad like living as a coward is no life to live. Amen. Uh, I want to be right. the man of virtue. I mm. want to be the man that, yeah, th- you're going to have enemies. That's fine. But ultimately where you 
you could say to the Lord, like, I, I, I said what you said to say, right? Ultimately, that's my job, and I want to do that faithfully. You close the book, and, and I want to ask you about this kind of as we wrap up again, that this, where do we go from here? I think it's a good question, like culturally for the church, what do you think's next? Uh, what would you encourage other men, other pastors maybe um, to take away from a conversation like this? We, we can't predict the future, and the future is so volatile given what we're seeing happen. So I noticed yesterday uh, I was I was doing a search for something unreal. I was doing a search online related to seeing videos uh, posted online of men who are exposing themselves in front of children at pride parades. And I was thinking, this is a crime. This is a crime. Yeah. Um, So when I did a when I did a search related to that, I found a, a news article from 2017 where it said police are still searching for a man who exposed himself to a child. And I was thinking, of course, wow. This is six years ago, Eric, six years ago, something that was a crime that would would have been written about in the news and everybody would have said, of course, this guy needs to be locked up. He's a criminal. And so I I think about where things are now and how things have changed. Obergefell really was an atom bomb in our culture because we've legitimized every form of sexual morality. Now we have the president of the United States saying that LGBTQ plus people are some of the most brave and inspiring people I have ever known. Those are his exact words. So from six years, exposing yourself to a child can go from being a crime or the police are after you. They're looking for you going over surveillance video footage to now you can do it being video video recorded at a pride parade. It's crazy. So what will six six years from now uh, beget for us? What will we have in 2030? What will that year uh, bring? I mean. Anything that I can think of, it's funny in the book, like I wrote about watching a TED talk about uh, pedophilia and I thought, man, that's edgy. I don't know if I'm going to leave it in there. And now I'm like, it's already out of date. (laughs) The book has been out a month and that thing, everybody knows that that pedophilia and grooming children, this is, this is the agenda. So anyway, back to your question, 2030, what are we going to be looking at and how can we be prepared for whatever godless, degenerate, unknown awaits us in 2030? We've got to fear God more than anything else. And I think God is disciplining us as a nation and as a church, if not outright judging us, at least we're under his discipline to uh, because we've been faithless. We've been cowardly. We've not spoken the truth plainly. And so we have to be we have to fear God. We have to speak directly. We have to discern the world winsomeness. Mm. I think this might this mindset of winsomeness, it reduces our ability to see what's out there because we're always thinking about packaging a message rather than seeing what's there and just addressing it plainly. So we have to discern. We have to fear God. We have to speak the truth directly. I think that there is a need for uh, in to new, we can't, I'm not, I'm not completely hopeless about existing institutions, but at the very least, we need to build up new institutions that can house good, healthy doctrine about sexuality and, yeah, and help time. to prepare children. So the children are key because they're being indoctrinated oh, everywhere. I had a guy send me a message yesterday. He said, Hey, would well, you think this book would be good for high schoolers? And I said, absolutely. That's the best time to get them. I have my own children. I'm like, hey, kids, I'll give you 50 bucks if you read this book this summer. (laughs) Write me a report about it. But I think we have to focus on children, but do so with being anchored in the fear of God, a a, just a dead aim at the center of God's heart for biblical sexuality and truth speaking. And And it has to be we have to be courageous in our pulpits. I just think that Christians need to be prepared to suffer and 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 know we will suffer for what we believe, get used to it, prepare for it. So that way we're not caught off guard. I'm preaching through Luke right now and I'm on the Olivet Discourse when he's mm. uh, we're just talking about, you know, pray it doesn't happen in winter and woe to those who are, you know, pregnant nursing children or, you know what I mean? Um, I'm just thinking uh, he was preparing them. Hey, whenever this bad, horrible thing happens, be ready. And I think mm. we just have to be ready because I don't, I see it getting worse before it gets better. There has to be a, an avalanche of public uh, disgust at LGBTQ lifestyles. And I just don't think we're there yet. And until we get there, we should prepare for more of this and buckle up. Cause I do think the next few years are, are going to be pretty difficult. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I also think uh, I've gone back to this quite a bit, but just the, um, you know, Billy Graham said that when one man acts courageously, it often stiffens the spines of others. And so I think for a lot of us, if you're that pastor, like if you can act courageously, uh, you get more courage in the pew. Right. We get more courage and culture 
So that becomes pivotal. And I even think about the word virtue, you know, root word is veer uh, for man, hero, yeah, or manliness. courage. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're talking about being a man, like this is essential, like courage is central to this. So I think just encouraging guys to continue in that. And I also think, you know, for yourself, think of Chase Davis, Matt Patrick, other guys that I've talked to. Aaron Edwards was the, he was on the show. He's a professor who got fired in England for mm. saying that, you know, homosexuality was invading the church, which of course it is. Um, but I think about this and I'm like, these guys actually inspire the church. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as we look and we say like, no, you can be courageous and, and God can use that. And that's really powerful. Uh, and something Aaron said to me, which I always found interesting. He said, well, you know, people always talk about winsomeness, but that's always aimed at the left. He's like, if you really want to win people, he said, I think speak boldly and be courageous. And then you win the right people. Uh, so I, I think that's an encouragement. Final thing I want to ask you, obviously we'll encourage people to buy the book. We've got uh, links for the show note that will direct people to where else can people follow what you're doing either on Twitter or online. I'm pretty active on Twitter. That's, that's the main place where I've been uh, engaging lately. D Michael Clary. So it's just my name with my first initial D Michael Clary as my Twitter handle. Um, but also have a, a Substack where I write a weekly newsletter um, that has sort of more in real time processing some of the similar ideas that are in the book, but developing them further too. And same thing, dmichaelclary.substack.com. Those are the two places where I'm most active. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Michael. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode. Thank you. I really enjoy really enjoy being here with you. Thank you, Eric. Awesome. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. And special shout out to our Patreon supporters. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, you can join today for as little as $5 a month. And that definitely helps keep this work going. We are glad to partner with you for content that builds a new Christendom and reclaims biblical masculinity at the same time. You can check the show notes for the link to become a Patreon supporter of the Hard Men Podcast today. Stay frosty. Fight the good fight. Act like men. 